And at this time, children, you are dismissed to Children's Church. That's for our preschool-aged kids. You can head on to the, to the back, through the double doors. The rest of you grab a Bible, and we're going to be in Acts chapter 2 again this morning as we dive in one more time before we get into a Christmas series this December. Acts chapter 2, we're going to be picking up in verse 40, if you want to grab your Bibles and turn there. Uh, Next week, we'll start um, a Christmas series on the songs of Christmas. There are a number of songs and poems and prophecies that occur right around um, the proclamation, the prophecies of, of Christmas coming to Mary and to Zechariah. And we find that there's a lot of singing around the birth of Jesus. And so we're going to take our time over the next three, four weeks to focus on those songs as a means of shaping us and guiding our hearts and minds towards Christmas and preparing us for the celebration of that great day. But today we end one more time in regards to Acts, and we'll finally complete Acts 2 this morning and finish up this section. Picking up in verse 40, hear God's words. And with many other words, he, that's Peter, bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles' And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is... The holy reading of God's word. Praise be to the Lord. Acts chapter 2. Well, we've taken a long route through this uh, chapter. We finally get to the end of it. As we're going to look this morning at the church. Um, A number of years ago, about a year after I was uh, graduated from college, um, I was in a wedding up in uh, Chicago. And so got to spend a couple days. It was the first time I'd ever been to Chicago I had to spend a couple days up there, and I, I was, it was just such a cool experience. If you've ever been to Chicago, it's, downtown area is just gorgeous. It's beautiful. It may, be, it may actually be the, the, the most beautiful um, large city I've ever personally been to. It's simply an amazing city between the Navy Pier and all the parks, and the, the food is obviously rather good. You know, go do a bike tour, just kind of riding around getting different food. Um, you'll, you'll feel lethargic halfway through, but it's a cool experience. Um, there's a fa- it's just a fabulous downtown, it, and it's beautiful. It's a beautiful city. The building is, and the architecture is gorgeous. And, of course, Chicago is known historically as being the Windy City. That is its kind of its nickname. But it has historically also had a second nickname, which has been known as the Second City. Now, some people think that referred, referred to it, you know, its stature in comparison to New York City, but that's not what it refers to. You see... Chicago, when it was first founded and when it grew up as a large metropolis in the Midwest, was actually principally known for its slaughterhouses. It was a place for animals to go die and to be chopped up and then shipped uh, on trains throughout the country. They mechanized the art of slaughtering hogs in particular. 
they got really, really good. Isn't that a great thing to be known for? Uh, slaughtering hogs. Well, they had a problem. They had to kind of figure out how to dispose of all these animal carcasses. And so they, they looked around and they saw, it was like, hey, there's a big lake over there. And there's a river over here. Let's just throw them in there. And so that's what they did for years upon years upon years. So much so that it was, you could not, it was also the drinking water. But it became just this stinking, disgusting city in which dead animal carcasses were floating all over the water in the, in the various places around Chicago. It also became known as a place of rampant crime and tenements. It was not exactly the place you'd want to live. Now, how, how in the world did Chicago go from that to the city that I visited that was so beautiful? You know the story, right? Miss O'Leary's cow kicked over the bucket and started a fire and burned down the whole city. What did they get? They got a second chance. They got to do a do-over. They got to start over with modern plumbing and a sewer system and new beautiful buildings. Wouldn't it be great to do a do-over? I mean, it, if you look at this world and you look at how the darkness of it, you look at the, the tragicness of our world, and you, you kind of want to go, wouldn't it be nice to do a do-over? If you're a parent, we have our fourth kid, and every night as I go to bounce my baby to sleep, I think I am such a better parent than I was seven years ago. I, it's like we, I, I take care of this baby so much better. I want to start over. I would, parents, don't you want to do over you see, like, I mean, if I could just start over, maybe I won't mess them up quite so badly this time. Getting the do-over with the kids. Wouldn't you like to do a do-over with school? I thought this many times. Man, as a homeschool parent, I'm like, oh, I'm like, kids are learning stuff, and I'm like, I know I studied that, but I don't remember that. So there's many times in which I've wanted to do a do-over. We need a do-over with this world, don't we? See, see, this is a world in which sex trafficking reigns. We have places like Haiti that should be a beautiful Caribbean island, but instead its topsoil has been completely washed away and it's been destroyed by injustice. We need a do-over in this world. Well, there is a do-over. There is a do-over. And God is starting in his do-over and redeeming this world with a particular people. And this is partly the story of Acts, that Jesus came to establish his kingdom in this world, and that kingdom is made visible... And that do-over is seen in a beautiful people, a new community called the church. You are the do-over. We are the start of the new city, of the new world, the new community. And many people have turned to Acts chapter 2 here at the end in order to study what the church should be like. So that's what we're going to do this morning. It is a brief kind of short description summary of the early church soon after they heard the gospel for the first time and how what the church looked like. Now, it was not a perfect church, as I'll mention a few times this morning, but this is a beautiful picture of what the church ought to be. And therefore, if many people, if they're going to and having a discussion about the church and developing their theology of how we're to do church, this is where they turn. To look here at the description of the early church, and so let's do that this morning. As the people who are the do-over, how ought we to live? How ought we to look to the world? How ought we to do 
community as God's new community in this world. We're going to look at three things this morning. First, we're going to look at the things, the, the devotion of the new community, the things that they are devoted to. There are particular disciplines or methods or tasks to which the church early on was devoted. This word right there in verse 42, it says, and they devoted themselves. And then it really lists, I'm going to give it to you in three different ways. We see that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and they devoted themselves to fellowship, and they devoted themselves to worship. But in order to help you to, to learn it, and I don't like to do this too often, this kind of alliteration, but I'm going to give it to you this way, three L's. They were a community that was devoted to learning, to loving, and to liturgy. To learning, to loving, and to liturgy. And the first is they were a learning community. You see there first that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. One might say perhaps that on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit opened a Christian school and 3,000 people entered into it immediately. They were instantly students who were saying, tell us about Jesus. As an aside here, it's interesting, it's people look over this and we simply just go, oh, okay, that's God's word. But you have to understand the place of the apostles. This is pre-New Testament. This is when they have merely just the Old Testament. And so they are dedicating themselves to the apostolic teaching. They have a particular place in the life of the church. They were, these apostles were specifically chosen by Jesus to be the ones who are witnesses to Jesus that helped explain who Jesus was in light of the Old Testament and to provide the authentic record of the events of the Gospels in Jesus' life. And they were this... This apostolic teaching, you may notice here in the the next verse, in verse 43, it says that many signs and wonders were done through the apostles. These signs and wonders were merely a sign saying, you should listen to these guys because look what they do. They're a means of attesting to their authority. And so that's that's what they listen to. How are we, people who dedicate ourselves to the apostles' teaching? Well, who wrote the New Testaments? The account of the New Testament is the account of the apostles or those they taught and helped understand, help us understand the gospel and its implications for our life. And though, if you were to be a people who are connected to and committed to and devoted to the apostles' teaching, you must be a people who are devoted to the New Testament, to God's words. So it says this in Ephesians 2.20, that, our founda- that the foundation of our faith is built on the apostles and the prophets, the Old and the New Testament, and we have a solid foundation upon their testimony. A spirit-filled church, though, is an apostolic preaching church. It's a church that loves to read God's word. But this verse actually means just a little bit more than simply reading God's word. Understanding some teaching. The word here, didache, means teaching, but it also means doctrine. Doctrine. Now, you know why they don't actually use doctrine in the translation? It's because translators know that modern people like you and me... We don't like that word. We hear that word and we go, ew. We, know, we don't want to touch doctrine. We don't like ye doctrine. Doctrine divides people, is the thinking. That if we can just stay away from all of these various things like, and not get involved in all these scholastic debates about the Bible, then we're all good to go. And in that, then we'd have some good unity. But that's not the case here at the early church. They were hungry for doctrine. They, were, they, were, they wanted explanations about who Jesus was and, and how, why did he do what he did. Now, the people who say, now, really, as Christians, here's all we need to focus on. We just need Jesus. Jesus saves, and that's all we need to say. Now, now that's fine. So you can say, that's lovely. That, that, and that's actually very quite at the core of what we believe. But let's just dive into that for a second. You have to then ask the question, who is Jesus? 
And then you go, okay, he's a man, but he's the son of God. How are we supposed to understand, how will you understand that whole thing? And then there's this Jesus, and then there's this Father guy, and then there's Holy, this Holy Spirit guy, and we're like, oh my goodness, how do we understand that? And what does it mean that Jesus saves us? What is he saving us from? And by the way, answering all these questions, that's doctrine. Doctrine is answering the questions that we have. It's going to God's word to understand all the, the great aspects of our salvation. So we don't run from doctrine. Doctrine actually ought to unite us as we try to study God's word, understand the teachings. We have, I, I don't know this is necessarily, necessarily true for the broader culture, but I think it's true for Bible Belt Christianity and that we are still a people who are fairly anti-intellectual. That we've considered it in the 20, late 20th century and the early part of a, the first part of the 21st century is that we are a people who just, we, we just not huge fans about this academic stuff, this intellectual stuff. I heard the, the story from one pastor who said he went to a, the chapel of a, to speak at the chapel of a seminary and he went to put his coat up in a coat closet that was right outside the door of the chapel and inside was a, it was loaded down with all of the theology books that the various seminary students, the seminary students had discarded because they didn't care about it anymore. We are an anti-intellectual church, but we are not to be necessarily an anti-intellectual church. We're to be a people whose minds are transformed. And if you actually want to be a people who engage with the culture and have an effect on this world, you must be a people who think well and understand the scriptures. N.T. Wright, who's a very well-known Christian scholar, said this. He says, where no attention is given to teaching, people quickly revert to the worldview of those around them. And here's what he means by that. Is there is a flow and a current in which you are living. And you're either going to fall, flow with that current, you're going to believe what the world around you believes, or you're going, to, you're going to go directly against that and find something against the grain in the teaching of Scripture. So will you be simply people who go get, go get the flow? You've got to fight that by being in the Word, by understanding the teaching of God's Word, so that you can then be able to critique culture correctly and also provide the answers to the questions that culture is asking. You fill your mind with the truth of God's Word. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Listen, Christianity is more than simply a mental exercise, but it is not less. It must be in your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The mind is in there, the way in which you're supposed to love God. So when the Holy Spirit comes down on God's people, we become a people who are passionate for the Word of God. And we don't become a people who go, yes, I've got the Holy Spirit, and I've got the nice feelings of Jesus, and that's great, and I don't need his word. No, we say, I'm going to dive into it more deeply. 3,000 people, they entered into Christian school. Are you devoted to learning? Now, you might say this. this is, understand this, just to be gracious. There are going to be different categories of people. We all have our different strengths and our weaknesses. Right? It's interesting. I, in various places in my life, for the most part, I've been somebody who likes academic things and theology. But then there's been these little pockets of time, like when I was in seminary, and which suddenly, compared to, if you're in a place where everybody's studying theology, suddenly I was like middle of the road interested in comparison to those other people. These people were asking much deeper questions than I'd ever asked, and frankly didn't care to ask. And they pushed me, and that was great. The goal and the desire is to be a lifelong learner. To be a person who says, where I am, I'm going to learn I may not be somebody who loves to read. Well, get a podcast. Listen to God's word preached and proclaimed. You've got to be in the word yourself. You've got to pick up books. That's lovely. 
But man, be in God's words. Be a lifelong learner. Don't make an excuse that, ah, that's not what I do. Second, they were devoted not only to learning, they were also devoted to loving. Devoted to loving. John Stott says that the word fellowship was born on the day of Pentecost. Fellowship, fellowship, what a cliche term, isn't it? I mean, us Christians, we just felt we just slap fellowship on everything. We're fellowshipping. We think of Christian fellowship as, as merely any kind of mingling of the presence of any kind of generally pseudo-Christian people. That's fellowship. Now listen, Christian fellowship, we think of it as just really, you know, it's church potlucks. That's Christian fellowship. Now listen, it's, now that, that's not, it's, that, that is Christian fellowship. You know, Christian, Christian fellowship is something far more than that. When I was living in Mississippi, I heard about a group of um, men who were um, meeting. It was a group of, uh, it was an insurance lunch of various insurance agents who were getting together for the, you know, a businessman's lunch type of thing. And it was Mississippi. So someone, they, you know, eventually, you just assume somebody's going to pray. And they're going to pray in Jesus' name. I mean, again, Mississippi. And so someone immediately just gets, I'll pray. And he gets up. And I remember he, he prayed. And he was like, Lord, thank you for this fellowship. Now, they weren't going to talk about God's word. They weren't going to pray together other than, you know, thanking the Lord for the food. And may bless it to our energy and the nourishment of our bodies. And yada, yada, yada. But this was considered Christian fellowship. A bunch of insurance agents getting together. I think Christian fellowship is something more than that. And we see the, the incredible links that it goes Christian fellowship is based off the word koinonia. You've heard it. We have a homeschool group in this town called koinonia. It has, it means, that word fellowship has, means holding everything in common together. Fellowship of the church was a common fellowship. And it was common because of the spiritual realities that they all held in union, union with one another. We have the verse that says, we have one Lord, not two, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. John the Baptist said this, and this is the amazing thing, that we, we are connected to one another because of our connection to the divine. The divine. John says this in 1 John 1, 3, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so you may also have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. That, now that's a mind-blowing thing. You see, when we think about inviting people to church and come be a part of our church, we're thinking, hey, well, come hang out with us. You are inviting people into relationship with the divine Holy One. That is an unbelievable thought, but that is with the, the, the connection that we have with one, with one another. These early Christians had all participated in God the Father and in Jesus Christ. They came to understand the relationship with Him. And because of that, it united them together. And they also now, on the day of Pentecost, are experiencing the filling of the Holy Spirit. One Spirit rests in you and in me together. I want you to see a couple things here in regards to their Christian fellowship. Their Christian fellowship was marked by two things in particular, at least in the context of Acts 2. Two things that are pointed out here I want to point out. First... It's not seen as deliberately in the text as the second one, but the first one is this, is their fellowship was marked by unnatural inclusivity. Unnatural inclusivity. Do you remember the day of Pentecost who's there? Is it simply a bunch of Jews from Jerusalem who all knew each other as grandmas and grandpas and aunts and uncles and they were all really tight and connected? They all looked alike, talked alike? No. Remember, there was at least 14 nations represented at Pentecost. And it is these people who become believers, and suddenly they're the ones wed together as one body. The church was immediately international. 
Now listen, it, it had had some bumps in the road within the reason why deacons are, are developed a couple chapters later is because there is clear racism going on in the church in which, in which one particular group is, of widows is being prejudiced against and they're not receiving the care from the church. They had some bumps in the road, but what we find in the church, in the early church, and really throughout the church's history, is that it is inclusive of all peoples, no matter your socioeconomic status, no matter your race, no matter where you're from or your background. There's a Yale historian who I actually quoted from a couple weeks ago, who particularly what he studied was what the rise of Christianity in the first couple centuries. And why in the world, in a context in which there are many new religions going on, there are many significant like sects and cults that are rising up all the time. Why is it that this little religion, born in this little podunk area in Palestine, why did it grow up and expand and blow up exponentially to the point that it took over the Roman Empire within 300, 400 years? Why did that happen? And he gives a number of reasons, but the fourth reason that he said is this, for Christianity's success, was this, and I'll quote, is to be found in its absolute inclusiveness, he said. More than any of its other competitor religions, it attracted all races and classes. The pagan deities, for example, were often tied and confined to certain regions and nations. Even the days of the most active proselytizing activities, Judaism never overcame its racial boundaries because its converts had to become culturally Jewish. Christianity, however, gloried in its ability to appeal to Jew, Gentile, African, and barbarian. And that's why it exploded. Because it was an inclusive church. And he, but the thing is, it wasn't natural. You may realize that most of us look pretty much the same. You know why? Because the natural proclivity of all of us is to be around those who talk like us, who, us who look like us, who eat like what we do, who want to sing like we do. That is the natural proclivity of mankind. But as a Christian church, we have to fight against that natural proclivity. In order to be an inclusive church or to draw people from all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of socioeconomic statuses, all kinds of races. If you have fellowship with one another, you think, listen, this, is, this isn't simply as marked differences as, as make racial differences and socioeconomic differences. This is simply sometimes just the people you like. I, in the last couple of years, I've become more and more um, critical of what is called the house church movement. House Church Movement has been particularly espoused by a guy named George Barna, who is a sociologist. And listen, there is, there, to, be, to, be, um, to not paint straw men, there is great reason why people love house churches. But I would say this, understanding that mankind is in its heart very selfish. I would say the vast majority of house churches, and frankly the vast majority of things we call church plants, are actually a bunch of people who say, we don't like people at this church, and so we're going to branch off, and I'm going to make church with me and my three or four families of friends. And this would be church. You know, that would be, wouldn't it be great if all you had to do every Sunday is get up and just go sing a couple songs and hang out with your friends? You guys have a cookout together at somebody's house and you watch some NFL football? Wouldn't that be lovely? But this is what we do. It doesn't even have to be as brash as, you know, Black and white or Asian and Hispanic, it is, it is frankly a, a difference of, oh, it's viewing church as being selfish. It's being about me. We, can we get over that and be a, 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 a family that loves one another, that seeks to actually be inclusive of all peoples in our church, to care and love for them, those who are different from us? That's the first thing. 
that marked the church and their fellowship. The second thing we see in this text, in this passage, was radical generosity. Verses 44 and 45 describe it really well. It said this, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Right? Essentially describing fellowship. All things in common there. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to, any, to all as any had need. Here's, here's the reality of the way the first Christian church lived. They lived as a family. You know, your family, it's, if, so, so often the way we interact is we go, this is my stuff and this is your stuff. That's, they saw themselves functionally, even though they had a right to, they didn't take away the right to own private property. They didn't demand it of you. But they saw themselves as being one family. Now, technically, in my household, I make all the money. I buy all the stuff. How good of a father would I be and a husband if I said, you know what, I made all the money. All that we bought was based on my income, and so this is mine. No touchy. No, everybody in my household, that chair, that's, that's my chair. That's all our chair. No one is saying, that's my couch, and that's my TV. It's our family's TV. We think of it as together. This is actually the mindset, the, the radical mindset that the early Christians began to have together. It's part of what it means to be a family together, to be a new community, as if this is the radical nature in which they shared with one another. Now, we already see, this is a, there's a strong tradition of this already in the Old Testament in regards to giving to the poor. Some people think that the, the, the 10% tithe was instituted in the Old Testament. The tithe was the minimum for Old Testament Israel. They probably gave something more like around the lines of 30% between their various sacrificial gifts and the way they would leave parts of their fields for the, for the impoverished people to come and glean from their fields what was left over. This has been a pattern in the Old Testament. And if the Old Testament church were waiting and hoping for some mystery, how much more should we who have had the gospel and all its fullness and all of God's generosity revealed to us be people who give abundantly to one another? That is the statement of what's going on here. The principle stated both here and also in Acts 4 as well. It says we see there in Acts 4 that there was no needy amongst God's people. Their money was distributed as any had need. As John was to write later, if we have material possessions and we see a brother or sister in need and we don't help them out, how can you call yourself one who loves Jesus? It's a pretty bold statement by John. Are we a people with this kind of radical generosity? Let me just say this, King's Chapel, I, I, listen, I, I've been at very few places where I've seen this done better. I don't want to be a pastor who simply browbeats you and says, do better. You do well. You've done well. Continue in your good deeds. Seek out those who are in need in our church. And by the way, if you're the one in need, come tell us. Help us be the church. Help us help you. You see, brothers and sisters, when you enter into the fellowship of God's people, my kids, have, they have no reluctance to come ask me for what they want, even at 3 in the morning. <laughs> now listen, if you call me at 3 in the morning, it, you, somebody better be dead. Or almost dead. But you could call at 3 in the afternoon, and we would love to get you help. We may not be perfect at it. We have much work to be done. But church, we, I think we're doing well in this area, and we can do even better. Be a fellowship of God's people who are known for our radical generosity. 
The church was known in so many different ways. You know, we've been emphasizing adoption and foster care around here. You know, what the church was known for in the early, in early centuries was then abortion was not this one. It was one very safe if you wanted to abort a pregnancy. And so what they would do is they would give birth to the child, and then what they would do is they would go out during the day, and they would lay the child out when there was low tide on the beaches, and then high tide would come up and sweep the baby away, and all nice and tidy. You could get rid of the, the encumbrance of a child. And so what the early Christians did, they would walk the beaches finding children. The generosity of God's people. Third, they devoted themselves to liturgy. Devoted themselves to learning, devoted themselves to loving, and third, devoted themselves to liturgy. This is, this is a fancy word for worship. Liturgy is the structure, the actual structure of worship. It is the main components that are to be a part of, and many people when they understand liturgy, is it's the story that you're telling in the liturgy. It's the way in which the various components of the worship fit together. Liturgy is the pattern of worship that we are to take up. And we see that they had a pattern. Not only did they dedicate themselves to the word being read and the word being taught in their midst, but they also, we see that there was the breaking of bread and the prayers. The breaking of bread stands for the Lord's Supper. Jesus had commanded them to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Wherever you go, do this in my memory, in my remembrance. Remember what I have done for you. They wanted to remind themselves and to remind each other, as we're going to do later on this morning, remind each other of the gospel, the goodness of what Jesus had done for them. Remind each other of all that had been done and all that it cost to save them. And not only did they celebrate the Lord's Supper together, they also prayed together. Also prayed together. Now, let me, I mean, just like I gave some marks about the fellowship, I want to communicate a mark that is here in regards to their worship. And I hope fairly cut through some of the, um, the divide that happens in churches. The worship that they had in the early church, as we see here, is it was marked by both formality and informality. See here, and I want you to see that they had a pattern of doing formal worship, but they also had a pattern of doing informal worship together or life together as a continuation of their worship. In verse 42, notice the the. Articles are important at various places. The the. It is a definite article. It says literally the breaking of bread and the prayers. This refers to a formal occasion. Prayer, of course, is something that we can do individually at any time. But in this passage, when it talks, it seems unnatural to say the prayers, doesn't it? They devoted themselves to breaking bread and prayer. That sounds much, but it's the prayers. Why is it the prayers? It's because these were written prayers. They were reading psalms together. They were getting together and they were all like, you pray this and you pray that. No, they were praying all, this is, this is responsive readings. This is responsive prayers. Some people have come to our church, and I understand that we, we worship differently than maybe some of the people, the backgrounds that you have. Or maybe you came out of a Catholic background, and this smells funky to you. You're like, wait a second. Wait a second. These people, they're baptizing babies, and they're reading together. But understand, there's a great reason why we read together. Because we think we have one confession. We walk in here all as sinners. It's not that you're sinners and I'm perfect. It's that we're both sinners. And let's think about the testimony that is. To let's say if somebody who doesn't know Jesus yet walks into a place of a bunch of believers and they say and confess all together every Sunday, God, we are in need of you. Think about the difference of that way, way, way often people think about Christians as being kind of holier than thou. But yet we all come in here together and we say, we need you. We confess this sin and this sin. And then we have things like assurances of pardon and we read scripture together and we read prayers together. This is what the early church did. 
It was a structure, it was a formalized set way in which they went about their worship. So we have a formal gathering, official gathering of the church. Whereas later we see later on in verse 46, though, we see not only that they've broken bread, then it says they go to the temple. And then after they go to the temple, it says they break bread again, but this time without the definite article. What are they doing? Here's what they're doing. Every day they're going to the temple, and they're having cool, fun, form, they're having formal worship together. And then they're going, hey, let's continue together. And they went to somebody's house, and they had dinner together, and they worshiped together, and they prayed for one another together. This is the informal worship of God's church. You see, like, and this is... For those who like, love the house church movement and love small church, this idea of all just getting together in, in, in houses, that is great. And I think they're, 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 they're connecting to something that's there. But let's not say, well, we want informal church, but not the formal church. Or some say, I love the formal church. I get to sit here, and I love the liturgy, and I love the reverence, and I love... But the whole, like, going to people's house, what if it smells like a dog? And what if I have to, like, talk about my life? And what if they, like, have needs? I might have to pray for them. And that would be, that's going to get weird. Now you see their worship is both formal and informal. You're called to, the, the general call I want you to see here with both of these, whether it's formal worship or informal worship, is that you and all these things are to be devoted to these things. Are you devoted to God's church? Devotion means intentionality. It means greater commitment to the church community. They devoted their lives to church. It's center their lives. In the Bible, the word devote means to give yourself away. In other words, you give yourself away to something. You sell your life wholeheartedly to a Christian community, to a church community, to this new community. They gave themselves away to be a people who learned and worshiped together and fellowshiped together and loved one another. The life of the church was the center of their personal lives. This whole idea, like, I love families, but there is a greater family. There's a greater family. It's the one who gathers on Sundays and throughout the week. You see how often, you see the commitment they made? How often did they they do church? Daily they went to the temple. You know, in in all leadership kind of stats, you can't ask people to do anything with church more than two times in a week. Two times a week, they'll give you two slots in the week. And that's for members who are committed to their local church. Committed to their local church. You 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 get three hours. Impress me. That's pretty much what people say. These people met every single day. Let me show you the profound nature of joining this new community. Joining the church is not like joining your local, you know, Kiwanis club. It is not joining another social club. It is more like joining a whole new nation. It's more like becoming a new race, becoming a new nationality. In verse 40, Peter says this. Here, I'll show you. He comes to the end of his message. We're going back to Peter's sermon. He comes to the end of his message and he says what? He says something bizarre. He doesn't say, be saved from your guilt and your sins or your burden. What does he say? He says, be saved from this perverse generation. There's a communal aspect. What he's referring to, we sang it in the song, Come to Hold the Wondrous Mystery. Or that line that says, see the true and better Adam. You see, you and I have all been a part. All who are born in this world are part of one singular generation. We all have something in common. We're all from Adam. And all those who are from Adam are fallen, are destined to a wrath, and live terrible lives, destined the lives of destruction and darkness. We are the race of Adam, the race of sin and perversion. That's our generation. It's not that Jesus' generation was worse than all the other generations. It was, it's talking about actually the generation of mankind. 
our likeness together. So what he's saying is be saved from that community and enter into a new nation, a new race, a new nationality. We are now a whole new family and a new community. We take the Bible and we turn it into individualism. I'm going to be saved and my problems are going to be solved. That's not the way it goes. Jesus says, I'm not going to just save your problems. I'm saving a community's problem. I'm forming a whole new people, a whole new community. I'm going to change your citizenship, he says. Do you see your life as that? Or is Christianity something you tack on to already your individualistic life? Or is your life now centered around this? You have to give yourself to the church. It's always amazing to me, as a pastor, I, you know, the people who show up, and they come for a couple months or a semester, and then they go, they, they, come, they write me an email, they say, Pastor Andrew, we love King's Chapel. It's, been, it's a really sweet place. We just, ha- we just haven't connected with people. And so we're going we're gonna to look for someplace else to go. And so I just, I'd write back and say, thank you. Let us know if there's any other kind of, there's issues that, you know, or problems or relational problems that came up. And I'd say, no, I just didn't. And, and the, what I want to say is, don't you think relationships are a little bit more deep, difficult than it would take three months for you to connect to them? Like, this is the whole problem of church hopping. Essentially, you're like window, you're window shopping. And when you're talking about entering into a whole new family. That takes years to devote yourselves. And, and it's always amazing to me when things go wrong with the family, how people just peace out. This is my dad. My dad was the pastor of a church for 25 years. I loved my church growing up. I loved the church growing up. So much of my call to ministry was because of the affection I felt for the church. And 25 years in the marriage, to, to, wed, to, his, to being at this particular church, things went bad for him. And he decided it was time to leave. And when he left, his plea and his resignation service was, if, if, you ha- if you love me, have any respect for me, stay. It was amazing to me how over the next year, people flooded away from that church. We're family. What are you doing? Don't leave when it gets hard. You stand up and you speak and you plead and you pray. Listen, it is of no witness to the world if we're together and whenever things get hard, we go, see ya, peace out. Now, the witness to the world is that, man, these relationships at church are really hard. I don't know how to have this conversation about this particular issue with this person, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try. And I'm going to have to go in three or four. I had, I had a woman in the, our church a number of years back who called me, and she was very upset by something I'd said. I'd offended her. Oddly enough, she couldn't remember what I said. But I remember, I remember it took four phone calls, four phone calls. I called her back four times. Every time, for the first three phone calls, we did not end on good terms. It took four phone calls. Pursuing and pursuing, would you give yourself to the church? Listen, dabbling in it and just kind of sticking your toes in it just won't work. You love the church? Jesus loved the church. This is a great hymn. Church is one foundation. Has this line, from heaven he came and sought her. To make her his bride. Listen, you cannot say, you cannot say that God is your father if the church is not your mother. Like, if you come to me and say, Andrew, I really like you, but your wife, she's got to go. We're going to have some problems. You don't get me without my wife and my kids. You don't get Jesus without his family. Listen, you say, well... It's not, you could say, it's just not worthy of my love. Well, of course it's not to you. Well, of course it's not worthy of your love. When we were unworthy that Jesus died for us. 
say, if the church was like, was like that church in Acts 2, then I'd come. Then I'd, be, then I'd throw myself in. Yeah, but then you'd show up and mess it all up. So you better just stay away. Do you love the church? Man, if you love the church, you're going to throw yourself in. You're going to devote your life to the church. All right. That's primarily what we're going to do this morning. I've got two other quick points. You might notice in your outline it's a really imbalanced sermon. I've got two other quick things to say. That's the devoted life of the new community. Two other quick things to say this morning. I want you to see what happens when the people throw themselves in the church. It's a beautiful thing. Second point is the results of the new community. The devotion of the church demonstrates the power of the Holy Spirit. It demonstrates what the kingdom ought to be like. It demonstrates the love of Jesus. You know the, you know the, old, um, the old superhero, the invisible man? Some of you, I, I'm, I'm even probably too young for that. But the invisible man, remember you, you, you can only see him if he put, you put a cape on him or threw paint on him. Uh, but the invisible man, where, where to be the paint? On Jesus. The spirit is invisible. He's a spirit. The kingdom is invisible. It's an invisible kingdom. We make it visible. We make the power of the spirit visible in this world. We make Jesus known. You know what that is? That's called evangelism, to make Jesus known. The faithful, committed, and intentional devotion to this new community is the way in which we make Jesus known in this world. Look at two things that happen at the very end in verse 47. It says this, and in verse 46, they found favor in the eyes of all the people. Found favor in the eyes of the people. Now, not everyone looked on them with favor. Right? A few chapters within, you know, things go bad with the religious leaders here rather rapidly. But the general sense of the society around them was this, was these Christians are impressive. Their love for one another, the way they sacrifice for one another, the way that they're bringing different nationalities together and caring for one another and trying to understand each other and listening to one another, this is impressive. This is compelling. You know, the elders and deacons, they're supposed to be well-respected in the community. That's one of the requirements to be an elder or deacon. You to be well-respected in our community. And so if you're a businessman who's known for your less-than-honest dealings in the community, for being a little bit of a shark... You don't get to be an elder or deacon in God's church. If you're known for being a stingy person, you don't get to be an elder or deacon in God's church. So that's one thing. They will know us by our love, right? The second thing, the church grew. And not transfer growth, right? It wasn't like, you know, they were like, hey, sweet, some people from Antioch came over to our church. That's nice. Look at us. We're great. Because we have the new cool thing. We got the spirit here. No, they had people who come to know Jesus, 3,000. And then it says what? Daily people were being added to their number. Now, what, how did that happen? Salvation is a work of the Lord, it says. Daily the Lord added. We cannot save people, but we can make the Lord known. We can make him known through the proclamation of the word, and we also make him known through our love for one another. We proclaim the gospel when we become the fragrance of Christ emanating into our community. When people could smell Jesus on King's Chapel, that's when we become a people in which the, the, we become really compelling. In which, last week I said this. I mean, it's interesting. When you, when you communicate the gospel to a culture, you want to be able to do it in such a way that people walk away going, I may not believe yet, but I want to believe. And the same way with the church. The church should be so compelling and so beautiful in the way it lives its life out together and the way when we, when we hurt each other that we seek rest, restoration and peace and forgiveness that we live out this way in such a beautiful way that the church goes, I don't know that I can be a part of them yet, but I want to be that part of that kind of a community. 
That's the kind of church we ought to be. Everyone wants this community, though. Here's the last thing I want to say this morning. How do you get that church, though? And, you know, every, every um, church planter, every kind of big church guy gets up, and they're going to talk about Acts 2, 42 to 47, what the church ought to be looking like. How do, we, how, do we, how do we get this? It's so rare, isn't it? How do we get this? It's the foundation of the new community. It's your last point. But we get it the same way they did. You know where we're going, right? What happened in chapter 2 in verses pretty much 1 through 41? The gospel was preached. The same way that this community is formed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. He spent three weeks looking at this. And what did Peter talk about in that sermon? He talks about the life of Jesus. He talks about the death of Jesus. He talks about the resurrection of Jesus. He talks about the ascension of Jesus. He throws himself into speaking and communicating the gospel. And the gospel is what creates and communicates and and brings to life this new community. Why did they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching? Why? Because they want to know more about this Jesus. They're like, okay, we've heard that. We want to know more. Don't study doctrine for your, for, you know, to get, to get a lot of knowledge. You study doctrine because you want to know Jesus better. Because you're like, that guy, that, that's amazing that he would do that. I want to know more. That's why. Why did this community devote themselves to worship? Because he's Lord and Messiah, as it says. He's Lord in Christ. He's worthy of my worship. I want to gather day in and day out, and I want to worship Jesus. They devoted themselves to worship because he was worthy of worship. Why, why do they love each other so well? Why are they so devoted to, to being radical in their generosity and to, to reach across various lines to bring one another in? Why are they so devoted? Well, they're devoted because of Christmas, the transition us to our season. See, what happens at Christmas? See, when Jesus is about to die, he prayed a prayer in front of his disciples. And he, there's just one part. He's praying to his father, and he says, You sent me into the world. That's what Christmas is. Christmas is the day in which Jesus displays the radical nature of God's generosity to us. In which the Son of God leaves the throne of heaven and the praises of all the angels to come and be mocked and scorned and to give his life as a ransom. Look at the generosity of God for you. To give his life as a ransom for you and me. That's what the incarnation is, is to come and take on flesh, to be connected to you and me, to live in, to, you, we were, as Christians, we're supposed to bear one another's burden. Think about the burden that Jesus bore. He bore your sin. He bore your suffering. He bore your flesh. He came to bear it. So that you who were ostracized from the community of God may now come into God's community. You who were part of the evil nation, the evil empire, the Axis forces that were against God and his kingdom now must be, now get to be involved in his kingdom. That's what Christmas is. Christmas generosity, this is radical. This is astounding that God would come to earth and become weak and take on flesh. You know what giving your money away is? You know what it does? It makes you weak. It takes away your security. It makes you weak. Your buying power is taken away because you gave it all to somebody else. One of the Christmas carols that we sing is this, Mild he lays in glory by, Born that man no more may die. Jesus died, that kind of generosity. Devoted, think about how devoted he is to you. He's so devoted that he came to a cross to bear your sin, to make you his, and to bring you into his new community. If, if, if we understand that kind of generosity, how can we not be generous to one another?
Let's pray, and then we'll go to the table.